For those that are remaining in the auditorium and watching online, please take your Bibles, if you would, once again, Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. We were blessed last uh, week to have a guest speaker, Tim Watley, and he walked us through the first 12 verses of this chapter, and now we want to complete this chapter this morning, or at least that is uh, the plan. So follow along, if you would as I read Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. He gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. This is the word of God. Who here this morning loves to wait? It's your favorite thing to do. All right, we're all on the same page. We hate waiting. From small things like waiting in line to big things waiting for major life events where time seems to slow down on the front side of those major life events and seems to rapidly speed up after those major life events are over, to waiting during a time such as we are in right now. There's different types of waiting, but none of them we enjoy. On hold is another way that we wait that we do not enjoy because the time is indeterminate. And every 30 seconds, we are assured that this call is very important to them, but again, we remain without talking to a human being, and our frustration and anxiety level increases. We are not creatures that like to wait. And yet what we have here is the example to us of Abraham, and therefore an example to us that if we are waiting on God, that waiting is active or ought to be, and it will not be disappointed because God is always faithful, always uh, true to his word and will always fulfill all of his promises. As we have said repeatedly, he is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. 
Paul's point then, throughout the first part of this letter to the church at Rome, as we have discovered and continue to rediscover, is that our righteousness is found in Christ and Christ alone. It is not to be found in our ethnicity. It is not to be found in our social status. It is not to be found in any signs that we may have done, external things, that rites or rituals that we may have performed. It is from God and God alone. He has made that point then about Abraham, and this whole chapter is about Abraham. Writing to a church divided, as we noted, that has predominantly Gentiles, but Jews also who have been moving back into the city of Rome after being uh, expelled. And it, it is either a church that is somewhat segregated internally or maybe even segregated externally, that there may even be more than one church, and there could even be a Jewish church or Jewish churches and a Gentile church or Gentile churches in Rome that Paul is writing to. And so as we come now to this passage before us, verses 13 to 25, there are at least four words that I want us to consider, and I want to define them as we begin. The first word is promise. We find it throughout this passage and throughout the letter. God has made promises. He made promises to Abraham. His promises to Abraham start in Genesis chapter 12. They're repeated, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, until they are fulfilled. But his promises to Abraham are multitudinous in Genesis 12, 1 and 2. Six or seven promises there contained in that short sentence from God to Abraham but he would be uh, the father of a great nation, of many nations. He would be blessed. Everyone that blesses him would be blessed. And that through him, all the world would be blessed. And we know the ultimate fulfillment of that is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Given to Abraham at a time where he does not have children. And he is continually moving towards the reality that he will never have children. We'll discuss that in just a moment. God has also made promises to us. And his promise to us is that he has declared us righteous in Jesus Christ. He is making us righteous daily and will one day make us fully righteous when we are glorified all the way through. Not just righteous acts that we may perform, but our attitudes, our thoughts, and even our desires will be as God is. Which leads us to the second word, which is righteousness. What is righteousness? Talked about here in this passage, talked about all the way up to, to this passage, and will be talked about throughout. Righteousness simply is that which is uh, right, that which is perfect and holy, that which is as God is. It speaks to God's moral character, and God defines for us what is right, what is good, what is holy and perfect. He is the definition of those things. And so to be righteous is to be as moral as God, to have God's character. Of course, we cannot gain that on our own. That must come from him and be applied to us. In the third place then, the word hope. We see it a number of times in the passage under our consideration this morning. Paul uses this word more in the letter to the Romans than any other book in the New Testament. At least 12 times he uses this word, hope. It is a hope that is well-founded because it is not founded on us. It is a hope that is well-founded because it is founded on God. And that is why we can have hope. God, the God of the impossible. God, the God who is always trustworthy, good, faithful and great. God who always keeps his word, who always fulfills his promises. There is always hope, even and especially when the situation seems hopeless. 
The fourth word under consideration then this morning is the word faith. And I've entitled the sermon this morning, Trust. Trust is certainly a huge element of faith, perhaps the core of it. Faith has been defined as something that is blind. And oftentimes when we hear the word faith, we think that it is something that is believed uh, even though there is a lack of evidence, or sometimes something that is believed even despite evidence to the contrary, and that is not what faith is. Faith is trust. Trust certainly in the evidence, all right, but trust nonetheless. And the trust that is here in this passage, the faith that is here in this passage, is not the amount of it or the type of it, but the object of it, which is God. Does it make more sense to trust in our circumstances or to trust in our interpretation of our circumstances or situation, to trust in our talents, gifts, intellect, abilities, or to trust in the sovereign God of the universe and what he has said he will do. What makes more sense? Okay? So this is what we are looking at this morning. But you'll note all four of these words woven throughout the passage. So this idea of trust, verses 13 through 15 then in the first place, we see misplaced trust. What is or what are the Jewish Christians or those Jews in Rome purporting to be Christians? What are they trusting in? One of the things they're trusting in is their adherence to the law. They are keepers of the law. But Paul has attempted to abolish that thinking already, but he reiterates that again. What does he say in verse 14? If it is the adherence of the law, Jews, who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So how can faith and promise be null and void? What's Paul's argument here? His argument is no one can keep the law. If righteousness with God, if the fulfillment of the promise of God that we can be made righteous is on us, there is no hope. Faith certainly is null because now it's based on our works. We're not trusting in God, we're trusting in ourselves. And we think that we can show that we are doing a good job. See, here's all the good things that I'm doing. Here's all the ways that I am following the law. But, of course, no one can keep the law perfectly. Therefore, Paul goes on to say the promise is void. Because if the fulfillment of the promise is based on our righteousness, it will not be fulfilled. Because we are not righteous. But if the fulfillment of the promise is based on God's righteousness, then it's guaranteed to be fulfilled because he is righteous. And he is always the one who fulfills his promises. He's always faithful to his word. So any hope that the Jews might have had in their own righteousness needs to be abandoned, as it is for us. He then goes on to say in verse 15 that all are transgressors under wrath. It's actually worse for those who have the law. What does he say in verse 15? For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there's no transgression. He's going to pick up on this in chapter 5 and expand on this a little bit more. But understand, he uses a different word here. The word for sin, iniquity, there's different words for, for uh, sinning against God, for disobedience. But here the word is transgression. It is certainly one thing to disobey God's moral code and to go against God's moral character, to not live like God is and how God created us to be. It is a different thing entirely to know specifically and explicitly what God expects and to willfully 
and arrogantly transgress that. So those without the law, Paul is saying, are almost, if you can put it that way, in a better position than those who have the law because some of their sin, we could say, is in ignorance where the Jews cannot claim ignorance. They have the law and for them, every time they sin, it is more than just sin, it's transgression. It is willful disobedience. So Paul says to all the Jewish Christians, if you are trusting in your ability to righteously, perfectly obey the law, that is grossly misplaced trust, you can't do it. And it's actually worse for you who have the law because you are under wrath. The law brings wrath. You are transgressors of God's law. You know who God is and what he expects and you continually disobey that. That sounds bad. It is. That's why Paul continues, all right? Second place, notice then the prop, proper object of trust is God. This is where he shifts again. He says, when did Abraham receive God's righteousness? Did it come before or after circumcision? He has proven the point previously before circumcision. Now he says that, that Abraham having righteousness counted, accredited to his account, did that happen before or after the law? Well before, over 400 years before, the law was given to Moses. So it is not in the keeping of the law or in Abraham's ethnicity before he was even Jewish, before that was even a thing. It says God credited righteousness to his account. So it is God who is the one to be trusted. Notice, if you would, specifically verse 17 and the latter part thereof. God, it says, is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In the first place, only God gives life to the dead. There are at least perhaps two things in Paul's mind here. One we know for sure is the fact that Abraham and Sarah, from a physical human perspective, are dead as it relates to creating new life. When Abraham gets the promise, he is, even then, close to beyond the age all right, of bearing children. He does have a child by Hagar, but as he gets older and older, certainly getting less and less likely. It says he's almost 100. You can, you can see Abraham as he has another birthday cake with another candle on it, another happy birthday song goes by, and another year there's no child. He's almost 100 years old, almost beyond the point where he can father children. And certainly, it says in the text, Sarah's womb is barren. In fact, when the angels from God visit Abraham and Sarah and tell her, this time next year you will have a son, she laughs. This, this is crazy. This, this doesn't make any sense. But God is the one who can bring life out of what is dead. And hang on to that, because he's going to get back to that before we end this morning. Praise God. It may also be on Paul's mind the reality that after Isaac is born, there is the test where Abraham brings Isaac up onto the mount and is to sacrifice him. And it says in Hebrews 11 that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac back to life from the dead if necessary in order to keep his promise. Our God is able. Our God can bring to life that which is dead. 
which doesn't make more sense. To trust in our abilities, to trust in our understanding of a situation, or to trust in the one who calls things to life from the dead. Notice in the second place. He calls into existence things that do not exist. It could be that what Paul is thinking about here is God as creator. We say that God creates ex nihilo from the Latin, out of nothing. And certainly that is how he called everything that we know into existence and much that we still do not know. But it could also be that what Paul has in mind here is the nation that God promised he would make of Abraham. Think what Abraham is seeing now, right now, looking down from heaven, assuming that you can see on earth from heaven. Could he possibly imagine the promise being currently fulfilled by all of us here this morning? All those that follow in the faith of Abraham. All of those that believe in the God who calls to life uh, things that are dead. Believes in the God who can create something out of nothing. He made from Abraham a great nation. Not just the physical, ethnic uh, ancestors of Abraham. One of whom was Jesus Christ the righteous. But also all who believe in God. All who have faith are in a sense, Paul is making the point, children of Abraham. Indeed, as he has previously said, inheritors of the world. Who could have, who could have seen this? And yet Abraham believed that if God says something, God will do it. Because our God is faithful and true and trustworthy. So it is not how much faith we have, it is not the type of faith we have, the trust that we have necessarily, it is the object of our faith that is most important, and of course that is God. Now in the third place though, in verses 18 through 22, we see that Abraham's faith is realistic, his trust is realistic. Does this mean, as we previously said, that Abraham was oblivious to reality? That he sort of just put his hand over his eyes and said, I'm just going to blindly trust and I'm, I'm just going to ignore all the things around me? No, it says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So, uh, Abraham's not unaware of reality. We as believers in, in God, uh, through Christ by the Spirit, we are not opposed to truth. In fact, we are to be those that believe and promote truth. There's a realism here. The situation certainly seemed impossible in verse 19. It didn't make any sense. Abraham's almost 100 and Sarah's 90. From a human perspective, this couple's not having children. It seems impossible. And yet God's promises defy the impossible. What does it make more sense? To believe in the situation? To trust in the circumstance? To trust in our finite understanding of the circumstance? Or to trust in the infinite one who always comes through? who is always faithful, who always keeps his word. What makes more sense? So notice then in verses 20 through 22. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. He grew strong in his faith. He said, gave glory to God. Paul is not saying that there weren't seasons where Abraham failed to trust God. He failed to trust God. Uh, his wife certainly failed to trust God when she laughed. She failed to trust God when the promise was not coming true and she gave Hagar to Abraham. He failed to trust God when he fathered a child by Hagar. He failed to trust God on numerous occasions. What is Paul pointing to, though? Each year, as it came and went, 
Abraham continued to trust in God, and some of the proof is in Genesis 17. Just before the promise was um, uh, fulfilled, and Isaac is, is coming, Abraham circumcises all the men uh, in his um, entourage in anticipation of the fulfillment of the promise. Was Abraham weak? Yes. Do we look to Abraham as the one that we trust in? <laughs> no. Right? But as he exercised his trust, it grew stronger. And notice in verse 21 what may be one of the best definitions of faith in Scripture. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. If that's not a definition of faith, I don't know what is. Abraham, despite his failings and his sinfulness and even seasons of distrust, ultimately trusted that he had a big God who was able to do everything that God promised. So God promised that he has declared us righteous in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Are we fully convinced that that is the case? Or are we still trying to earn our righteousness before him? God has promised that he is making us righteous through the sanctifying process of his word and his people and the Holy Spirit and prayer and all of these things. Do we believe that God is able to make us righteous? Do we believe that the way in which he is making us righteous is the best way, which is always the way of suffering? And do we believe that our God can bring us all the way home? Do we believe that indeed one day he will declare us fully righteous, glorified, righteous from the inside out, righteous down to the depth even of our desires? Do we believe that? Do we believe that our God is able to do that even in the midst of all that we're going through? Our God is able. He is trustworthy. He is good. He is great. He has a plan. Everything has purpose and meaning and significance because our God is in control of all things. Are we fully convinced of that? It is not our faith and our trust. It's who we're trusting in. And that is why, Paul says, his faith was counted to him for righteousness. And as we close this morning then, we notice the trust is rewarded. What does this have to do with us? Paul's speaking to the church at Rome, but he's speaking beyond them to us. He says in verse 23, that reality, as we learned last week, of, of God's righteousness being accredited to our account was not just written for Abraham, but for all, us also, he says in verse 24. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. God gives life from the dead. We're going into the Easter season where we celebrate and commemorate the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That actually happened. And, and, and that was promised by God. That he would uh, be able to find a way to satisfy his justice and yet declare sinners justified. That he would be able to maintain who he is as holy and righteous and perfect and yet make perfect those who are very imperfect. And he did it through Jesus Christ the righteous. He fulfilled his promise. We have hope. God can bring things back to life from the dead. Jesus is proof of that. As are we. If you are here this morning, there was a time when you were dead. You did not believe in God. You were running from God. You hated God. You gave no thought to God. God was not in your life. 
There was only deadness towards him. And yet he brought life, and that life is in you if it is in you this morning. You resonate with him. You have a desire to please him and to be rightly related to him and to speak to him and have him speak to you. There's communion there, relationship there. Where before there was death, there is now life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, through Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, regenerates us, gives us life. And notice God always keeps his promises. Verse 25, Jesus Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's true. It's real. It actually is the case that sinners justly condemned by God, justly deserving of his wrath, can be made his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ by the Spirit. That's true, and that's real. And that is what we are trusting in or ought to be trusting in this morning. We don't trust in government, ultimately. We don't trust in our leaders, ultimately. We don't trust in our own intellect, talents, abilities, ultimately. What we trust in is who we trust in, which ought to be God who is always faithful, who always fulfills his promise, who always keeps his word. He is the only one who can take that which seems impossible and make it possible. And what makes more sense? To trust in our circumstances and our situation, to trust in our interpretation of our circumstances and situation, to trust in our ability to change our circumstances and situation, or to trust in God who has always been faithful, always will be faithful, who has declared us righteous in Christ by the Spirit, is making us righteous daily and will one day complete that in glorification. Who does it make more sense to trust? Especially when it doesn't make sense to trust from a human perspective. Grace Baptist, may we trust God. And not just sort of get us out of the situation we're currently in. I'm not even talking about that. We trust that he is completing the good work that he began in us in Jesus Christ. Let's look to him in prayer this morning as we close. Father, thank you for your word. It is clear. It is simple. But it is not easy. Father, thank you that we can trust in your righteousness. Father, even our uh, devotions this morning, going through the book of Exodus, and our Bible reading plan, and Moses is up in the mount with Joshua, conversing with you, getting from you the two tablets of stone. And while he's gone, the people are tired of waiting. And rather than trusting in your promises, rather than trusting in your goodness and righteousness and holiness and perfection, and rather than hoping in you, they despair and ask for other gods. And Aaron, Moses' brother, provides that for them. Father, you describe your people as stiff-necked, rebellious, grumbling, complaining, continuing to sin in the same ways perpetually. 
And yet, Father, thank you for your grace. It is so amazing. It is not in us we can trust. We can only trust in you. And I pray that we are doing that, even and especially now. You never promised comfort and ease. You never promised that we would know what was going on all the time. You never promised that we would ever know what was going on at any point in time. You never promised that we would be in control. You promised that you were in control. You promised that you would be trustworthy. You promised that you would declare us righteous, be making us righteous, and bring us all the way home into your full righteousness. And you never fail. Whatever you're doing, we ought to trust you, that you are at work as you always have been in our lives. Help us not to misplace our trust, but help us to trust the one who makes and always fulfills his promises. Because in that, Father, we have hope that indeed we will be as righteous as you are. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.